Chapter sixty of Easy Pop and Joy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah. Easy Pop and Joy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter sixty. The Last of the Baroness. At this time, Dr. Olivia Q. Fleabody had become quite an institution in London. She had obtained full, though by no means undisputed, possession of the great hall in the Marylebone Road, and was undoubtedly, for the moment, the queen of the disabilities. She lectured twice a week to crowded benches. A seat on the platform of these occasions was considered by all high-minded women to be an honour and the body of mutinous wives who twice a week were worked up by Dr. Fleabody to a full belief that the glorious era was at hand in which women would be chosen by constituencies, would wag their heads in courts of law, would buy and sell in chapel court, and have balances at their bankers. It was certainly the case that Dr. Fleabody had made proselytes by the hundreds, and disturbed the happiness of many fathers of families. It may easily be conceived that all this was gall and wormwood to the Baroness Banman. The Baroness, on her arrival in London, had anticipated the success which this low-bred American female had achieved. It was not simply the honour of the thing, which was very great, and would have been very dear to the Baroness. But the American doctor was making a rapid fortune out of the proceeds of the hall. She had, on one occasion, threatened to strike lecturing unless she were allowed a certain very large percentage on the sum taken at the doors, and the stewards and directors of the institute had found themselves compelled to give way to her demands. She had consequently lodged herself magnificently at the Langham Hotel had set up a brougham in which she always had herself driven to the institute and was asked out to dinner three or four times a week, whereas the baroness was in a very poor condition. She had indeed succeeded in getting herself invited to Mr. de Baron's house and from time to time raised a little money from those who were unfortunate enough to come in her way. But she was sensible of her own degradation, and at the same time quite assured that, as a preacher on women's rights at large, she could teach lessons infinitely superior to anything that had come from that impudent but imbecile American. She had undoubtedly received overtures from the directors of the Institute, of whom poor Aunt Ju had for the moment been the spokeswoman, and in these overtures it had been intimated to her that the directors would be happy to remunerate her for the trouble should the money collected at the hall enable them to do so. The Baroness believed that enormous sums had been received and was loud in assuring all her friends that this popularity had in the first place been produced by her own exertions. At any rate she was resolved to seek redress at law, and at last had been advised to proceed conjointly against Anjou 
Lady Selina protest, and the bald-headed old gentleman. The business had now been brought into proper form, and the trial was to take place in March. All this was the cause of much trouble to poor Mary, and of very great vexation to Lord George. When the feud was first becoming furious, an enormous advertisement was issued by Dr. Fleabody's friend, in which her cause was advocated and her claims recapitulated, and to this was appended the list of nobility, gentry, and people of England who supported the disabilities generally and her cause in particular. Among these names, which were very numerous, appeared that of Lady George Germain. This might probably have escaped both her notice and her husband's had not the paper been sent to her with unusual friendly zeal by old Lady Brabazon. Oh, George, she said, look here. What right have they to say so? I never patronised anything. I went there once when I came to London first, because Miss Mildmay asked me. You should not have gone, said he. We have had all that before, and you need not scold me again. There couldn't be any great harm in going to hear a lecture. This occurred just previous to her going down to Manor Cross, that journey which was to be made for so important an object. Then Lord George did just what he ought not to have done. He wrote an angry letter to Miss Fleabody, as he called her, complaining bitterly of the insertion of his wife's name. Dr. Fleabody was quite clever enough to make fresh capital out of this. She withdrew the name, explaining that she had been ordered to do so by the lady's husband, and implying that thereby additional evidence was supplied that the disabilities of women were absolutely crushing to the sex in England. Mary, when she saw this, and the paper did not reach her till she was at Manor Cross, was violent in her anxiety to write herself, in her own name, and disclaim all disabilities. But her husband, by this time, had been advised to have nothing further to do with Dr. Fleabody, and Mary was forced to keep her indignation to herself. But worse than this followed the annoyance of the advertisement. A man came all the way down from London for the purpose of serving Lady George with a subpoena to give evidence at the trial on the part of the Baroness. Lord George was up in London at the time, never having entered the house at Manor Cross or even the park since his visit to Italy. The consternation of the ladies may be imagined. Poor Mary was certainly not in a condition to go into a court of law, and would be less so on the day fixed for the trial. And yet this awful document seemed to her and to her sisters-in-law to be so imperative as to admit of no escape. It was in vain that Lady Sarah, with considerable circumlocution, endeavoured to explain to the messenger the true state of the case. The man could simply say that he was only a messenger, and had now done his work. Looked at in any light, the thing was very terrible. Lord George might probably even yet be able to run away with her to some obscure corner of the continent in which messengers from the Queen's judges 
would not be able to find her, and she might perhaps bear the journey without injury. But then what would become of a baby, perhaps of a popinjoy so born? There were many who still thought that the Marquis would go before the baby came, and in that case the baby would at once be a popinjoy. What a condition was this for a marchioness to be in at the moment of the birth of her eldest child? But I don't know anything about the nasty woman, said Mary, through her tears. It is such a pity that you should ever have gone, said Lady Susanna, shaking her head. It wasn't wicked to go, said Mary, and I won't be scolded about it any more. You went to a lecture yourself when you were in town, and they might just as well have sent for you. Lady Sarah promised her that she would not be scolded, and was very keen in thinking what steps had better be taken. Mary wished to run off to the deanery at once, but was told that she had better not do so till an answer had come to the letter, which was of course written by that day's post to Lord George. There were still ten days to the trial, and twenty days, by computation, to the great event. There were, of course, various letters written to Lord George. Lady Sarah wrote very sensibly, suggesting that he should go to Mr. Stokes, the family lawyer. Lady Susanna was full of the original sin of that unfortunate visit to the disabilities. She was, however, of opinion that if Mary was concealed in a certain room at Manor Cross, which might, she thought, be sufficiently warmed and ventilated for health, the judges of the Queen's bench would never be able to find her. The baby, in that case, would have been born at Manor Cross, and posterity would have known nothing about the room. Mary's letter was almost hysterically miserable. She knew nothing about the horrid people. What did they want her to say? All she had done was to go to a lecture and to give the wicked woman a guinea. Wouldn't George come and take her away? She wouldn't care where she went. Nothing on earth should make her go up and stand before the judges. It was, she said, very cruel, and she did hope that George would come to her at once. If he didn't come, she thought that she would die. Nothing, of course, was said to the Marchioness, but it was found impossible to keep the matter for Mrs. Toff. Mrs. Toff was of opinion that the bit of paper should be burned, and that no further notice should be taken of the matter at all. If they don't go, they has to pay ten pounds, said Mrs. Toff, with great authority. Mrs. Toff, remembering that a brother of hers, who had forgotten himself in liquor, at the Brotherton Assizes, had been fined ten pounds for not answering to his name as a juryman. And then they don't really have to pay it, said Mrs. Toff, who remembered also that the good-natured judge had not at last exacted the penalty. But Lady Sarah could not look at the matter in that light. She was sure that if a witness were really wanted, that witness could not escape by paying a fine. The next morning there came a heart-rendling letter from Aunt Jew. She was very sorry that Lady George should have been so troubled, but then let them think of her trouble, of her misery. 
she was quite sure that it would kill her, and it would certainly ruin her. That odious baroness had summoned everybody that had ever befriended her. Captain the Baron had been summoned, and the Marquis, and Mrs. Montacute Jones, and the whole expense, according to Anjou, would fall upon her, for it seemed to be the opinion of the lawyers that she had hired the baroness. Then she said some very severe things against the disabilities generally. There was that woman, Fleabody, making a fortune in their hall, and would take none of this expense upon herself. She thought that such things should be left to men, who, after all, were not so mean as women, so at least, said Anjou. And then there was new cause for wonderment. Lord Brotherton had been summoned, and would Lord Brotherton come? They all believed that he was dying, and, if so, surely, he could not be made to come. But is it not horrible, said Lady Susanna, that people of rank should be made subject to such an annoyance? If anybody can summon anybody, nobody can ever be sure of herself. On the next morning, Lord George himself came down to Brotherton, and Mary, with a carriage full of precautions, was sent into the deanery to meet him. The Marchioness discovered that the journey was to be made, and was full of misgivings and full of inquiries. In her present condition, the mother expectant ought not to be allowed to make any journey at all. The Marchioness remembered how Sir Henry had told her before Popenjoy was born that all carriage exercise was bad. And why should she go to the deanery? Who could say whether the dean would let her come away again? What a feather it would be in the dean's cap if the next Popenjoy were born at the deanery. It was explained to her that in no other way could she see her husband. Then the poor old woman was once more loud in denouncing the misconduct of her youngest son to the head of the family. Mary made the journey in perfect safety, and then was able to tell her father the whole story. I never heard of anything so absurd in my life, said the dean. I suppose I must go, papa. Not a yard. But won't they come and fetch me? Fetch you? No. Does it mean nothing? Very little. They won't attempt to examine half the people they've summoned. That baroness probably thinks that she will get money out of you. If the worst comes to the worst, you must send a medical certificate. Will that do? Of course it will. When George is here, we will get Dr. Loftley, and he will make it straight for us. You need not trouble yourself about it at all. Those women at Manor Cross are old enough to have known better. Lord George came and was very angry. He quite agreed as to Dr. Loftley, who was sent for, and who did give a certificate, and who took upon himself to assure Lady George that all the judges in the land could not enforce her attendance as long as she had the certificate in her hands. But Lord George was very vexed beyond measure that his wife's name should have been called in question and could not refrain himself from a cross word or two. It was so impudent you going to such a place. Oh, George, are we to have that all again? Why shouldn't she have gone? asked the dean. 
Are you in favour of rights of women? Not particularly, though if there be any rights, which they haven't got, I thoroughly wish that they might get them. I certainly don't believe in the Baroness Banman, nor yet in Dr. Fleabody. But I don't think they could have been wrong in going in good company to hear what a crazy old woman might have to say. It was very foolish, said Lord George. See what has come of it. How could I tell, George? I thought you promised that you wouldn't scold any more. Nasty fat old woman. I'm sure I didn't want to hear her. Then Lord George went back to town with a medical certificate in his pocket, and Mary, being in her present condition, afraid of the authorities, was unable to stay and be happy even for one evening with her father. During the month, the disabilities created a considerable interest throughout London, of which Dr. Fleabody reaped the full advantage. The Baroness was so loud in her clamours that she forced the question of the disabilities on the public mind generally, and the result was that the world flocked to the Institute. The Baroness, as she heard of this, became louder and louder. It was not this that she wanted. Those who wished to sympathise with her should send her money, not to go to the hall to hear that loud, imbecile American female. The Baroness, when she desired to belittle the doctor, always called her a female, and the Baroness, though in truth she was not personally attractive, did contrive to surround herself with supporters, and in these days moved into comfortable lodgings in Wigmore Street. Very few were heard to speak in her favour, but they who contributed to the relief of her necessities were many. It was found to be almost impossible to escape from her without leaving some amount of money in her hands. And then, in a happy hour, she came at last across an old gentleman who did appreciate her and her wrongs. How it was that she got an introduction to Mr. Philogunac Colibs was not, I think, ever known. It is not improbable that having heard of his soft heart, his peculiar propensities and his wealth, she contrived to introduce herself. It was, however, suddenly understood that Mr. Philogunac Colibs, who was a bachelor and very rich, had taken her by the hand and intended to bear all the expenses of the trial. It was, after the general intimation which had been made to the world in this matter that the summons for Lady Mary had been sent down to Manor Cross. And now, in this halcyon days of March, the Baroness also had a problem and was to be seen everywhere. How she did work! The attorneys, who had the case in hands, found themselves unable to secure themselves against her. She insisted on seeing the barristers, and absolutely did work her way into the chambers of that discreet junior, Mr. Stuffenruff. She was full of her case, full of her coming triumph. She would teach women like Miss Julia Mardmay and Lady Selina Protest that it was so to bamboozle a baroness of the Holy Roman Empire. And as for the American female, you'll put her pipe out, suggested Mr. Fulogunia Curlips who was not superior to a mild joke. Stop her from piping altogether in this country, 
said the baroness, who, in the myths of her wrath and zeal and labour, was superior to all jokes. Two days before that fixed for the trial, there fell a great blow upon those who were interested in the matter, a blow that was heavy on Mr. Colebs, but heavier still on the attorneys. The baroness had taken herself off, and when inquiries were made, it was found that she was at Madrid. Mr. Snape, one of the lawyers, was the person who first informed Mr. Colebs, and did so in a manner which clearly implied that he expected Mr. Colebs to pay the bill. Then Mr. Snape encountered the terrible disappointment, and Mr. Colebs was driven to confess his own disgrace. He had, he said, never undertaken to pay the cost of the trial, but he had unfortunately given the lady a thousand pounds to enable her to pay the expenses herself. Mr. Snape expostulated, and later on urged with much persistency that Mr. Colebs had more than once attended in person at the offices of Mrs. Snape's and Cashett, but in the matter the lawyer did not prevail. They had taken their orders from the lady, and must look to the lady for payment. They, who best knew Mr. Fulagunia Colebs, thought that he had escaped cheaply, as there had been many fears that he should make the baroness altogether his own. "'I'm so glad she's gone,' said Mary, when she heard the story. "'I should never have felt safe while that woman was in the country. "'I'm quite sure of one thing. "'I'll never have anything more to do with disabilities. "'George need not be afraid about that.'" End of chapter 60 Recorded by Sarah